Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from X-Growth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out about their successes, fails, and what's working for them in the market. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack to connect with our members. That's enough from me. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hodo with X-Growth. And today I'm talking to Christopher Willis, Chief Marketing and Pipeline Officer at Acrolinks about how should B2B marketers think about pipeline acceleration and start strategically rolling it out in their organization. On that note, let's dive in. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm super excited as well, especially around the topic of, of pipeline acceleration. I think this is a conversation or this is a this is a topic that a lot of people, a lot of marketers, a lot of B2B marketers talk about. It sounds cool to talk about pipeline acceleration, but I feel like in a lot of conversation, it doesn't have much, con- there's not much context or definition around it. Like people are like, you know, I'm trying to, yeah, accelerate the deal. And, but then when you, when you ask how they're trying to do that, it becomes very vague and fuzzy. So first of all, I want to, I want to ask you, how do you, how do you define pipeline acceleration? So we've, I mean, we, like everybody, we have a sales cycle with multiple stages, right? So it starts with interest confirmed. It means that we've identified that there's interest and we move into the discovery stage and then we do some business alignment to make sure that we're building out a business case. We validate that we move into consensus and then into negotiation. First things first, understanding that full state and cycle, how long does it take to go from first stage to the end stage? But then ripping into that and looking at every individual stage inside there, what's the average stay in discovery? Like if your discovery stage is 180 days, the only thing you've discovered is that you're not going to sell any software. Like that was too long. They're not interested. If it takes 180 days to find out what their problem is, they've solved their problem. So being able to identify where those problems are in the process, I know right now that if we can get through business alignment, so from interest confirmed discovery into business alignment and get out of that, our chances of closing business are much greater, like much greater, like 50% more than when it was in business alignment. And so how do we now drive through that process? How do we shrink that time? And it's a, it's a full front office approach, actually more than front office to understand, do we have a product problem? Are we just unable to effectively demo the product or does the product not do what we want it to do? Do we have an information problem, an enablement problem with the sales organization? Do they not have the materials they need? Do they not have the business case that they need? Um, Do we have just an individual problem? We're not telling the story correctly. We started wrong or we're talking to the wrong people. And looking at all aspects of the way that we sell in this 360 degree view, finding ways to shrink each one of those stages, bring them back down to a reasonable amount of time, start setting some SLAs around those stages, and then measuring and amplifying that measurement. So for instance, if you spend longer than 45 days in discovery in my organization, I get an email, but it's not just me. It's me. It's the chief revenue officer. It's the CEO. And we're not going to do anything about it other than in your ongoing um, pipeline meetings, but we're going to know it. And that helps us to coach. That helps us to, you know, small talk in between meetings. How can we help these deals move forward? 
versus not really having any idea where things are in the process until something is either opened or closed. Got it. Got it. Yes. Uh, so defining very clearly those stages of, of the pipeline and then measuring the, the time frame and then putting SLAs and benchmarks in place to kind of reduce those. Exactly. So like, for instance, knowing that, you know, my interest confirmed to later stage, let's say interest confirmed discovery, what is my conversion rate for that? What's the average time that that takes? Each stage through, I need to understand that. And there's a couple of reasons why, and we'll talk about several of them probably in more detail, but it's also about identifying the value of your overall pipeline. Again, I think we'll get to that in a bit, but understanding those conversion rates, understanding the time spent so that you can impact A, the conversion rate, and B, the time you're spending in stage. If we don't know that, if if the only answer is our sales cycle is nine, you know, nine months, well, okay, I want to shrink nine months but I have no idea where or why. If you have a sales process in place, if you have exit entr- entrance and exit criteria for each one of those stages and an expectation of how long you should spend there, if you've enabled the sales rep to move through the process, um, it makes it a lot easier to talk about accelerating individual stages than saying, I want nine months to go to eight months because I want it. Like, that doesn't necessarily work that way. Why did this become a focus point at Acrolinks, like what was the issue? Why why did this? Uh, why did you start focusing on it? We were seeing a, a large amount of pipeline created across the front office, coming in from marketing, coming in from our uh, customer success team, uh, coming in from the sales organization, and we were starting to see effectively a, a bottleneck at that early stage. There was so much coming in that it was difficult for the sales organization to push the right opportunities through. So this, the genesis of this was really about identifying things like the amount of volume that we can pass through, helping to harden the leads that are leaving marketing, going to the BDRs, the product from the BDR to the seller, so that what we're passing on is the best quality, the most likely to close. As we did that, we saw some of those conversion rates start to go up. So a lead is turning into interest confirmed at a higher rate. Interest confirmed is moving to discovery at a higher rate because the product's getting better. Um, That also has a downstream effect in budget because as we improve those conversion rates, we don't need to fuel the engine with as much. So we're just throwing wood on the fire and watching it burn in a lot of cases. It would be a lot more interesting to put the right fuel on the fire have the fire burn longer, brighter, without having to put as much on. And so that was the initial impetus of this, was let's find the right stuff, move that into the process, and see if we can get it back out the other end in a reasonable amount of time. Where that went to was, okay, so we've we've ironed out a lot of the process, and we spent a lot of time, our CRO has spent a, a huge amount of time hardening his sales process throughout the stages. And, We've worked as a group to identify the materials and the enablement that's necessary to go through each one of those stages and try and institutionalize that across all sellers so that we're comparing apples to apples. But where we are now is really just in the day-to-day of understanding the ongoing health of the business. So the question that I get a lot is, why is there a CMO, me, a CRO, Shane Cumming, and then this pipeline officer role. And it's, I mean, in my words, I think everybody in our company might see it just a slightly different shade of gray, but 
for me, Shane, we're here we are in Q4. And the most important thing that we're going to do as a company is close a really positive Q4. It's going to be the best sales quarter we've ever had. And as the CRO, Shane is heads down, making sure Q4 goes as we expect it. The problem, though, is that so is the sales team. And my job is to look forward. Q plus one, Q plus two. So in this case, Q1 2022, Q2 2022, what's going to happen? Are we going to be in a position to be healthier? Are we going to have our best quarter ever, heads down, go close all that business, and then move into Q1 and have nothing? Because that's not the business that we're building. We're building a, a, a high-growth, accelerating organization. Are we in a position to be that? So while he's heads down closing his quarter, getting the salespeople to get all the business in that's going to happen, I'm working with them all the way back in creation. Are they getting the right amount of meetings from the BDRs? Are the partner Is the partner channel operational? Are they generating their own meetings? Are they doing their prospecting? Are they progressing their deals? So looking at, you know, for instance, where we sit today, we have a large number of opportunities for Q1 with Q1 close dates in business alignment right now. And what I know from doing this for a little bit is that it is unlikely that if the end of the year comes, we're sitting here on New Year's Eve, and those deals are still in business alignment, they're not going to close in Q1. So are we looking at them? Are we paying attention to these opportunities and moving them forward into closing positions so that as we get into the beginning of Q1, we're in negotiation, we're going to close it in that quarter? You had the revenue. If we don't, they're not going to go anywhere. Hmm. And that's, that's the challenge that we deal with. So that's all of these things are what led us to where we are today Got it. in a operate today, but look at tomorrow environment. That makes sense. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, and, and I, I, love, I love that that approach that you have that, hey, sales is focused on this quarter. I need to be focused on Q plus one, Q plus two, and probably even Q plus three, depending on the sales cycle. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very interesting and succinct way of looking at it. What are some of the tactics and activities that you've introduced to kind of increase that pipeline velocity? So, I mean, one of the things... There's some things that are obvious or things that aren't as obvious. Let's start with the obvious. So I have a monthly meeting with each and every sales rep. And our CRO is on the call as well. If it's in Europe, our uh, head of European sales is on the call. And we work through the things that I care about. I don't care at all about your current quarter. So the fact that you're killing it right now is largely irrelevant to me. That's your one-on-one with your direct manager. Right now, I want to talk about starting back at creation. How many meetings have you been involved in this quarter? How many of those meetings have turned into something? Now let's move right into your pipeline. What have you created? What new dollars have you put into your pipeline for future quarters? What uh, what have you closed lost? And can you give me a reason why? Should this be moving back and be reactivated by your BDRs or is it really dead? Then we move into looking across all the stages of their pipeline, identifying risk. So it's fantastic, Bill, that you have a million dollars worth of pipeline for Q1 against your goal of having about 800,000 in pipeline. But that million has a very low value because most of it is in discovery stage, which represents roughly 20% of the total value of your unweighted pipeline. So your weighted pipeline right now in that million is 200,000. It's unlikely you're gonna hit your quota for two reasons. One, because your your weighted pipeline is under your quota. And two, because as we just discussed, 
We're sitting in December 1st, and all of your next quarter opportunities are in the earliest stage of our pipeline, which means that eyeballs, I discount those. They don't exist. You have zero pipeline. The fact that you have weighted pipeline is only a function of math. It is not a function of where you're actually going to be. It is very unlikely you'll close any business. Now, let's talk about what we have to do. And that's where now the marketing aspect of me comes in. What, who, how do we help you? And so the unintuitive aspect of what I'm doing is things like my product marketing team is has MBOs associated with acceleration and weighted pipeline. Why do they have anything to do with pipeline acceleration? Well, because if the seller's having difficulty selling, we can't get out of discovery for whatever reason, and this becomes a bigger issue than one person. I'm betting that we can do something to solve that. And I want my product marketing organization to feel that. I want them to understand that when we're struggling in discovery or business alignment, you need to help. You need to give something. What is it? Are we missing a demo? Are we missing a video? Is there a piece of content that we're not offering? Is the business case weak? Do we need a better ROI tool? What can be driving this process? So we're constantly looking and talking with individual sales reps about the, the things that they need to move these deals forward. There's this constant focus on creating that acceleration inside each stage to get them further and further towards the position of, of being ready to close the deal. Has there been low-hanging assets that you created that had a big impact? Or, I mean, it could, could have been asset, could be like content, could have been, you know, whatever. But like, does anything come to mind that, that you and the team created that, that had a um, quite a substantial impact on, uh, on the acceleration of, of, a, of some stage of the pipeline? Yeah, so I mean, fun story. One of our value drivers, one of the reasons that people buy our product is the efficiency that comes from it. We can help you reduce the overall cost of content in your organization. And that makes a lot of sense when you say it out loud. Like we're helping you eliminate huge parts of your editorial process. So it goes to serve that you would spend less money. Unless you work at a Fortune 2000 company and we tell you that you can save millions and millions of dollars and you say, well, that's awesome and I'd love to do that, but show me, show me in my budget where I have a line item for content creation. And unless they outsource everything to an agency, they don't because content is a byproduct of people coming to work. You are a content creator. I am a content creator. We all create content. And you're not in your budget as content. You're in your budget as headcount. So we had to, and this was an initiative that started with our CRO. He's really thought through this really well and then became a, a full organizational approach to the value of content in the organization and content as an asset and helping businesses to understand that regardless of how you paid for it, you have this asset. Many of our customers have, for instance, uh, a support site with a million pages and what's the cost of an individual page on that website? And we can argue all day about what we think it is and what you think it is as the customer. It doesn't matter. Name your dollar amount. Because the result of this is you have a very expensive asset. It's super valuable to you. And then the question becomes, how often do you maintain this? How do you maximize the value of this? And that type of initiative helped to drive that middle of the funnel and get us from business alignment through to, to validation and consensus because 
a couple things happened. One, when you show somebody a potential billion dollar asset in their business that they don't even think about, if you're talking to the wrong person, that person's going to get out of your way. You're like, I am not a billion dollar value person. I need you to talk to my manager's manager. And that accelerates us to somebody that can actually buy software. Uh, and then the next thing is we are showing them something that, again, argue with me. Tell me that you don't think it's 500 bucks a page. Tell me that you think it's 200. Is it less important if it's a half a billion dollar asset versus a billion dollar asset? It's still a huge asset for your business, no matter who you are. And now let's talk about maximizing the value of that. Let's talk about the reduction of costs associated with building it and being able to source other projects using internal funds that you didn't even know you had. Like all of that made it really easy for us to, to drive through that particular problem in our sales cycle. And that was an exciting one. Got it. Got it. That's, a, that's an awesome story. Chris, what are some of the mistakes you've made along the way of, of kind of implementing this system? I think that, I mean, first and foremost, I'm not a math guy. I, uh, I have a liberal arts background and my reporting requirements are huge. I, I'm very lucky that there are people in my company that are good at Power BI and understand data tables. But that's the first thing is that this is super data intensive. I'm looking at dashboards that look at every piece of the data that we collect inside Salesforce. So from a high level model standpoint, I care about uh, from a velocity equation standpoint, uh, number of opportunities times the average deal size times win rate over average sales cycle length. That's how we measure velocity. The result of it comes out in a, in a dollar amount per day. I don't mm. really care about the dollar amount as much as I care about the direction that we're going. It should be getting bigger. And so the first thing was just being able to collect this data singularly aligned across the organization because to the question at hand, what mistake did we make? I'm off trying to build stuff like this by myself or on an island with my data person that I work with offshore. And my data looks different than my CEO's data, who is also doing things like this. Uh, and it looks different than our CRO's data. And so it makes it very difficult to go into a meeting. And that continues, I mean, to be the case. Even as we get better, we still have, because we're using Power BI to run some reports and Salesforce to run some reports, we still end up with different timing. And I mean, we got ready for a board meeting last week. We literally had to say at this hour right now, we stop, boom, nobody updates a number again. Don't touch anything. These are the numbers that we use. We're all aligned. Don't move. And if you, I mean, 15 minutes is the whole world of difference. Um, so the first thing that I would suggest going into this is delegating all of your reporting work to a central organization and getting out of the way. The CMO, the CRO, and the CEO should not own their own reporting. It's a oh, recipe. Oh, really? Process. Interesting. Got it. Uh, it you, you can't, right? I mean, one set of data, one view, one way to build a report is very important. And when everybody has their own way of running the same report, you're going to get different results. And nothing kills the importance of metrics faster than misaligned ones. Um, so that was a, an early thing that we learned. Um, we really do now rely on our central sales operations uh, team to be able to manage a lot of these numbers and validate the things that we're doing. Got it. Got it. Any Anything else that comes to mind? Any other um, mistakes? I mean, you, you talked about measurements as well, but um, but yeah, any anything else? I mean, I think 
I don't know if it's a mistake yet, um, but I think if, an, another less than intuitive change that we made was pushing groups like the BDR organization further into the sales cycle than you would find in other businesses. Let me explain why. And I mean, people listening can tell me why this is a bad idea, or you could believe that it might be a good idea and you could try it. But what I feel as a buyer, so as a marketing person who is an executive, who is a, an executive sponsor of projects and buys software, um, somebody calls me and they want to sell me something. First thing is good luck getting me. But if you do, or better, if I call you, fill out a form and say that I want to buy your product, I'm going to give somebody a name. Mary calls me and Mary's the first person I talk to. And maybe Mary calls me a bunch of times and I blow her off. And so I've heard her name a lot. And finally we talk and she schedules a meeting. And I think I'm meeting with Mary. Mary's in the meeting, but so is John and Bill and Martha. And I don't really know who all these people are. I just know the person that I built a relationship with. At the end of that first meeting, I get an incoming email from Bill. I don't know who he is. I don't remember what his role was in the meeting. There is no more Mary. And I don't really understand what just happened. And I attribute a lot of the early stage slowness to that, to the fact that the BDR built a relationship with the prospect and then they bait and switched like they're out. I don't Mm. know who's a BDR and who's a seller and I don't really care. I just, I'm interested in your product and I know you and we're having a conversation and now you just drop somebody else in it and that's going to slow the process down. So what I, what I've done is push the BDRs further into that equation, both from an operational standpoint and from a compensation standpoint. So if there is an issue at the handoff, so the BDR gets us to interest confirmed stage, then the rep picks it up and runs it through discovery and on through. If, if the sales rep can't get that person back after that first meeting, it's incumbent on the BDR to do that. That's how mm. they're going to get the rest of their comp. And same thing, like if it moves forward, I don't care how far, but let's say that it gets into business alignment and then the person ghosts us, send it back to your BDR because they're not going to get the rest of their compensation until this progresses. And I don't know yet. I mean, it doesn't, it's not working in every situation with every individual that does it. And every salesperson manages this this differently. So it's hard to institutionalize. It's hard to make it a hard and solid rule, but it's interesting to think about that ownership of the continuity of the early stage, not the selling. The BDR is not going to do the selling. The BDR is not going to run the discovery. They're not going to build out the business case, but they're going to create that continuity that makes it partially sales assistant, partially relationship owner that just allows you to move more smoothly from stage to stage. And I don't know if it's a mistake. It seems to be interesting at best. That's the only word that I can think of that really encapsulates where we are with it. But it's something that I wanted to try. And uh, we'll have some results to talk about, hopefully shortly. That brings an interesting point. Do BDRs report to sales at uh, uh, Acrylinks or do they report to marketing? Marketing. They report to marketing. For the first several years, um, they were reporting directly into demand gen. And uh, that made sense because the BDRs are essentially the lens through which we measure all of our spend. So 
we can develop eight bazillion leads, but if none of them turn into opportunities, they weren't any good. So it made sense that DemandGen owned this own this part of the business because that's their litmus test. This year, I brought in a, a real BDR manager, and technically, org chart wise, they are part of the pipeline organization, which is a separate part of the business than sales or marketing. Their manager, the BDR manager, reports directly to me, and the me that's the pipeline person. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. How does so? The, probably the last question I want to ask is from from our conversation. You have a very interesting and and connected relationship with sales. How do, can you can you paint us a little bit of a picture of like how does that relationship with sales look like? I mean, we talked about BDRs reporting on the you. You talked about you having a regular meeting with every salesperson. I mean, you know, I, I know it's 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 amazing practice, but it doesn't happen very often. So how does how does that work um, at the organization? So one of the things that I. I say every time I talk about this is this relationship is not for everybody. Like this, this role would not work <laughs> in any other company I've ever worked in. We are very lucky uh, at Acrolinks that we have the relationship between sales and marketing that we have. And it starts at the top. Shane and, and I are aligned on what we're here to do as a front office. And neither one of us wants the other's job. There isn't rooms full of ego. We both have a lot of confidence in what we bring to the table. And that's super important because if you start to get, if you start to lose confidence, then you could very easily think that one of, or the other of us is coming for the other one. And that's not, that would not allow this to work. He's amazing at his part of, he's been transform, transformative to the business. When we brought Shane into the business, this has been the, the, the thing that's really driven a lot of our our acceleration from a growth standpoint. So he's great at what he does. Um, and by allowing him to really focus on the things that are most important to the success of the business at this very moment, it's helped to drive our sales numbers in ways that we didn't expect. We're ahead of schedule from a growth standpoint. I, on the other hand, I mean, it's weird having marketing talk to sales the way that it does. So I have to, I have to understand what my goal is and my goal, you know, as as I said, I don't want to talk to you about your Q4. Like that's not my job. It's none of my business. Um, what my business is, is that my marketing team is creating things for you that are going to get you Q1, Q2 or Q3 opportunities. And I want to make sure that we're paying attention to those. And that we're moving those through the cycle in the right way so that we're healthy. And that combination of the two things and the understanding of what we're both here to do, and then the individual personalities at play. I have the personality for what I do. He has the personality for what he does. It just happens to match up, allows us to do this in a way that, like I said, wouldn't have worked in my past experiences. It's just, it's really, it's a special environment. And I think that when it was originally set up, it was set up to increase the friction because Shane and I got along so well and it didn't, it didn't work. We still don't have that friction because we're both, I mean, it's incented to drive the business. Like we're here to grow a big, valuable business and, and it starts and ends with the ability to sell. Got it. Got it. I love it. Chris, I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. But if sure. I, when, before I kind of get there, is there anything regarding pipeline acceleration 
velocity and everything that we've talked about that you think is valuable to cover that I didn't ask? I mean, I think we're still, you know, we're learning more and more every day about what we need to know to be more effective. It's it's great that we've solved some problems. It's great that we've seen acceleration and and we have. So over the last five quarters, we've seen sales velocity for expansion opportunities more than double. We've seen sales velocity for new logo opportunities triple. So it's it's working. It's having an impact. But how do we continue to improve? Because this trajectory that we're on, it's it's going to head further up. And so this isn't a just sit here and watch this thing get slightly better. This is find the hockey stick and and ride it up. And so continually evolving the data that we're looking at and thinking about how our production impacts, uh, marketing production specifically impacts pipeline over time. So not just I'm going to create an opportunity over here and it's going to be closable in three quarters, but like this lead is going to result in an interest confirmed when, and then if we follow the SLA, when is the discovery opportunity going to be created and how many of them based on the amount that we put into the pipeline, understanding the timeframes associated with each one of those, the conversion rates associated with each one of those so that we can individually impact those conversion rates. And once we can do that, then we have a really tunable machine. Like then it's just twisting dials as we scale to get tighter and tighter and tighter until something goes in, something comes out on a consistent basis. That's really what we're trying to drive towards. I, I love that structure. I mean, that's a, that's a structure I think it's hard to find in a lot of organizations. And it's just hard to dig up that information as well. But um, that, that, sounds, that sounds quite exciting. Quite exciting. Okay. Let's get to the rapid fire questions. Let me ask the first one. The first one is, what is one resource? It could be a book, a blog, podcast, whatever it is that has fundamentally changed the way you you either work or live, um, but has it had a big impact on you? So many years ago, I can never get the name of the guy right. There is a sports owner, Tom Spolestra, I believe is how you pronounce his name and marketer. And I believe he owned the Portland Trailblazers. You can fact check me on this. I'm probably wrong. This was literally 27 years ago that he wrote a book. And the story in the book was that the team that he owned, let's say that it was the Portland Trailblazers, was crappy. And he was losing all of his season ticket holders. And he believed that people liked stuff in FedEx boxes and they would open it. So he took a rubber chicken and put a basketball jersey on the rubber chicken. And on the front, it said, don't foul out, F-O-W-L instead of F-O-U-L, um, like a chicken. And then had a note on its ankle talking about season ticket renewal. And he shoved it in the FedEx box, sent it out to all his non-subscribed or renewed season ticket holders, and got some exorbitant return on that. Huge conversion rate. And at the time that the book came out, we were launching a company around the first mobile applica- uh, mobile packaged application. We had a, an application that was perfectly suited to mutual fund wholesalers at large institutional investment firms. Fantastic. So I believed him and I bought a box, custom made boxes and a little <laughs> pillow and uh, a mobile device. It was a Palm Pilot at the time. And um, built a demo using, you know, fake PowerPoint on this thing and hand delivered it to all of these uh, heads of sales at mutual fund companies. 
And that $1,000 investment resulted in $4.3 million in lifetime value, American Express, Putnam, and Pioneer Funds. That book, I was not even the marketing person when I read that book 20-something years ago. Um, that's the book that sent me towards marketing. <laughs> so that. I love that. And, you know, direct mail is is a is a big thing i love it we we've run it in a lot of our campaigns as well and it has amazing results so uh so a big fan of it as well question number I've two for 20 years though i've never had as an effective <laughs> <laughs> no fair enough fair enough question number two if you could give one advice to b2b marketers what would it be don't be a b2b marketer don't act like a b2b marketer the people that buy our products are people uh, and I think that's the thing that we tend to forget is that we're selling to the enterprise. We need to have enterprise messaging that resonates with the enterprise buyers and our enterprise personas. It's okay to know the people. And I think we've been uh, over time super successful going above and beyond to know the individuals that we're trying to market to. Because I don't, I don't want to talk to everybody in your marketing department if I'm trying to sell you marketing software. I know who the people are that are likely to buy it. So if I can know that, like there's plenty of tools out there that will tell me who that exact person is, but that's not enough really um, because that person is a person. So it's nice that you can figure out that the demographic is vice president of demand gen inside an organization, but that doesn't really tell you what the person, Mariana, who is that person that sits in that desk cares about. And what they think about when they go home at night, whatever, whatever. So we've taken extra steps to try and understand the individuals. And I mean, a very simple example, we said at the beginning that I am a CrossFit coach and that's a cult in the world that, you know, if, if you do CrossFit and I do CrossFit, it's likely we're friends. So if I can find out that a head of marketing at one of our prospects is involved in CrossFit in some way, I'm going to go to the CrossFit.com game site and find their games account because everybody that does the CrossFit Open, which is available to everybody, has an account on that page. I'm going to find them. I'm going to send them their page. I'm going to send them my page. And now that we've identified that that's you and this is me, then we're friends. And if we're friends, well, I want to tell you, friend, about what we do at our, in my company. And just those little things increase your hit rate so dramatically by not thinking about, like, I got to send out a form letter with my name and my company and my logo and some pithy thing at the bottom of it. No, just send an email to a person. Like, treat your prospects like people, and you're going to get people results. If you treat everybody like a business buyer, your conversion rate is going to be less than 1%. Love it. Love it. Question number three. Who are some of the influencers you follow in the sales and marketing space? So I think, you know, most identifiably, Mike Volpe is a great example. Mike was the CMO at HubSpot uh, when HubSpot exploded. And I have the benefit of knowing Mike. And he just, he says great things. And I've always had a history of creating very actionable uh, content marketing. I don't need my content marketing to be about us and our product and our company. I don't think that people go out and search for a company or a product to solve their problems when they're sitting at their desk at work. I think they're looking for a solution to their specific problem. And his belief was always, I'm going to create marketing and events and content for people that are never going to be 
our customer because I want to build this huge community because I don't know where we're going to go in the future. And I don't know what the value of that community will be, but I want that community to be there because if it's there, nothing bad is going to happen. Like it's not going to hurt us that we have that huge community. And, and as we saw with the explosion of HubSpot, that community was what he grew into. They were coming to conferences, people that would never, that had never bought his product that had no money to buy the product would come to the HubSpot conference because there was so much leadership in what they were delivering. And I've, I've always thought that was a really good approach, and I, I reference him a lot with that. My sort of secret influencer is a guy named Doug Kessler, who is a, I think he's a managing partner at an agency in London called Velocity, who is, just does amazing things with very clear, easy-to-read, lively content. Just a, a great strategist of content creation his organization's fantastic but he is he's the best got it got it awesome insights last question is what's something that excites you about b2b today the mystery and the unknown of what's coming next i think is really what it is you know we spent most of the day today in an office with people which was crazy talking about next year and how to break through in ways that we've never broken through before. A lot of the tools and tactics that were available to us, that were useful to us in past years, aren't useful right now, aren't available to us. So how do we reinvent everything that we know to be better, to go beyond just what we would have had with our old results, but actually to take that to the next level level and just jump all the steps in the middle. And I think that's that's what I am excited about. I think that's the, what the people that work on my team are excited about is the ability to do new, to find that new thing, not be afraid to fail or make a mistake and just go after what the next big thing is. Find it, identify it, define the next big thing. Love it. Love it. Chris, this has been an awesome conversation. I took a lot out of it. And, and I'm, I'm very sure that a lot of our listeners are going to take a lot out of it as well. There's been a lot of golden nuggets that you've dropped throughout the, uh, throughout the podcast. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and thanks for your time. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me. This was awesome. This episode of Gross Connie was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing and music also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make the show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or share a pod with a friend. If you'd like to connect with the members of Growth Colony, join our free Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support and looking forward to seeing you in the next one. This podcast is brought to you by Xgrowth, an account-based marketing agency with a strong specialization in the APAC market. If you're starting to roll out an account-based marketing initiative in your firm or looking to take your current program to the next level, whether it's one-to-one, one-to-few, or one-to-many, don't try to do it all alone. Chat with the ABM experts at Xgrowth to see how they can help you both on strategy and execution of your next ABM campaign. To find out more, head to www.xgrowth.com.au. That's www.xgr.com.
o w t h dot com dot au. 